the Canvas LMS goes live nearly every day on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. If you haven't tuned in uh, to one of these live webinars, check them out this week. Some of the strongest voices in the Canvas community and beyond share distance learning strategies, triumphs and defeats, stories of leadership, approaches to community engagement, and useful tips and tricks for all users. And... Eddie, we've been on it a couple of times. I was going to say, I, I don't want to be biased, but there are a couple <laughs> that I think you'll really enjoy. <laughs> yeah. The, so we got the chance um, this this last, what was it, last week? Was it last yes. week? Uh, so yeah. last week we got the chance to uh, participate with the learning and leadership folks uh, at Instructure. And Trenton uh, Goebel was, uh, was kind of the host he was the brains it was fantastic. of that particular webinar, and, and we were just so honored to be a part of it and to get to talk with him about, you know, the leadership elements uh, of, of what we've been sort of coping with over the last couple of months. And it was just an outstanding time. Yeah. And then we got to do our we did uh, episode 20 live right. uh, with with this webinar. So it, it's been a lot of fun. And if you haven't checked them out, we're going to link the show notes to the main page that has 40 plus uh, live webinars and they have really knocked it out of the park as far as giving you content in your time of need, which I think most of us can agree uh, this is our time of need. And although we've been off for a couple of weeks, you know, jumping back in, it's really important to remind people that we've, we've done some things uh, in a different format, but we're back to kind of our, our we're kind of back in the chair today, which is awesome. It, it feels it feels good to be back on this format. Matt and and talking with a great guest that you're going to really enjoy uh, on episode 21. Marcus, we've also been uh, really heavily involved in promoting uh, this thing. <laughs> uh, Marcus and I were just in the middle of you know training, doing some fitness for uh, some other events that we had going on in our lives, and we were like, hey, what if we motivate ourselves by throwing out there that we are you know training for a, a mini marathon? And I know Marcus has been training for the Ironman, so we decided to do this hashtag Panda Miles challenge that's been going on on Twitter. Um, we really wanted to make a goal for all Canvas fam to go the distance for learning, which is the idea that we came up with. And we wanted them to walk, hike, jog, bike, run. 500 miles was kind of the, the symbol of us saying, hey, we're putting in a really great effort and educators worldwide are getting involved. Marcus, we crushed that goal with two weeks left in the month of May. Um, so now we're just, we're all in, we're going real hard the next couple weeks and we're trying to get a thousand miles by May 31st. If you want to be involved to tweet your miles at cannabis casters with the hashtag Panda miles. And if you look at that hashtag and you scroll back through, you'll see some of our live runs, some of the things that we've been doing, but it's, uh, it's incredible. I, every time I, and again, I don't know why people love to do this with us, but um, because I, I'm I am of the opinion that walking, jogging, hiking, I, people don't do that for fun. Um, <laughs> sure they do. Mark, Marcus loves it. I'm just like ah, I, I did the thing. Okay, it felt good. You know, relieved a little bit of stress, and I got to get out of the house for an hour. But also, like I come away with it at, at the like, why did I do that? Like, why did I put my body through that? But it's always nice to see other people go out there and put in some effort and put in some miles. And uh, yeah, it's like I, I don't. Know maybe we're doing this for a good cause. We're really just drawing attention to the fact that exercise is also important for your mental health as an educator. And going the distance for learning is a great tag. And and this hashtag Panda Miles challenge. So so jump in and get involved. Yeah, it's really what we really want to do is just have our community, all of the Canvas users that we can get involved. We need to be able to, like Eddie said, have some outlet, right? Uh, get out of the house in a safe way. Uh, certainly physical fitness helps the mental and emotional uh, well-being. And uh, the other thing we've got going on here with the Canvas fam is uh, something that I've always believed in, which is iron sharpens iron. And when when you see uh, somebody else out there doing something great, it is motivating, I think. And so it's been really great to see folks, you know, tweeting their miles and being motivated uh, to to do something either to start 
doing some physical things uh, that maybe they hadn't been doing in the past or just having that accountability partner group to say, you know what? I went for a walk today and I put in two miles in my neighborhood and I'm going to tweet it out uh, to the to the canvas fan because it's all for sort of a group effort to accomplish something. Uh, So we're really excited about it. The other Marcus, we talk about social and emotional health here. Um, I'm bummed. Let's be honest. In StructureCon 2020, which we felt like would be a great event for us as the Canvas casters, our first time we were going to be presenting. Uh, They're going virtual, which isn't it's not completely, you know, going away, but they are going to go virtual on Thursday, October 15th. Obviously, it's the right call because due to COVID-19, there just really isn't any way to get us all in the same room um, in July. So the event is Thursday, October 15th. We're going to link again down in the show notes. You're still going to be able to go down that road of being a Canvas Jedi. You'll attend amazing online sessions. Again, we are really excited to continue to still be a small portion of that and be a part of that as whatever, you know, they ask of us. It was kind of a bummer, if I'm being honest, right? Like a, a little bit of a bummer not to be able to to enjoy InstructureCon uh, as first time attendees. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely excited about that. What is it? What's the, the phrase that absence makes the heart grow fonder? Um, so uh, I feel like InstructureCon 2021 could be amazing uh, if, if we're able to get into a physical space with all of the amazing people in the community, all the folks at, at Canvas and at Instructure and all these amazing users worldwide, uh, definitely is going to be great. In the meantime, the the virtual event. Listen, if anybody can make a virtual event awesome. I think it's probably in structure and canvas. So uh, I feel like I feel like you're you're definitely doing yourself uh, a disservice if you're not getting yourself registered for that uh, Thursday, October 15th date. And you're bound to walk away from that day of learning with uh, just an absolute wealth of new ideas uh, moving forward. We forgot. It's free. Oh, yeah. The comp- <laughs> the conference is free. There's no there's not a lot. There's not a lot of companies out there doing that market. For sure. Let's just be completely honest. And it opens the conference up to people that might not necessarily be able to have attended. So now it's like you really don't have an excuse. It's going to be in October. You're probably going to be, you know, in the middle of your first semester. Hopefully you get to just sign up for free. It doesn't cost your district anything to have you attend virtually to the InstructureCon 2020 event. Yeah, we can't leave out the fact that it costs the district absolutely nothing for you to attend. Welcome to episode 21 of the Canvas Casters podcast. In this episode, we have an absolute powerhouse. Dr. Bettina Love, uh, guys, you are going to be completely engaged and you are not going to be able to stop listening until you get through the entire episode. Uh, She does amazing work. So insightful, so powerful and a wonderful voice. I am so excited to get this episode out and I hope you guys love it. Dr. Bettina Love is an award-winning author and associate professor of educational theory and practice at the University of Georgia. Dr. Love is also one of the field's most esteemed educational researchers in the area of hip-hop education. Her research focuses on the ways in which urban youth negotiate hip-hop music and culture to form social, cultural, and political identities to create new and sustaining ways of thinking about urban education and intersectional social justice. Her work is also concerned with how teachers in schools working with parents and communities can build communal, civical, engaging schools rooted in intersectional social justice for the goal of equitable classrooms. And in 2014, she was invited to the White House Research Conference on Girls to discuss her focus on the lives of black girls. In addition, she is the inaugural recipient of the Michael F. Adams Award from the University of Georgia. She has also provided commentary for various news outlets, including NPR, The Guardian, and the Atlantic Journal-Constitution. Marcus, I have no idea why she decided to be on our podcast with that list of 
incredible outlets, but we are super honored to have Dr. Bettina Love on our show today. Thank you both so much. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm confident that, that that canvas casters will not be added to that list. And if it is, it's going to be smaller print for sure. But yes, we are absolutely honored uh, to have Dr. Bettina Love on the, on the show. And, and we're honestly really grateful uh, for, you know, the great thing that is, you know, networking with great people. We're able to sort of be brought to uh, a place where we could get the chance to reach out to Dr. Love. And I'm really excited to talk with you today. So welcome to the podcast. Um, we're just going to get right into it here. We are, have all been sort of living this this thing. Um, and I know that we hear it all the time on TV and put it whatever way you want. But it has definitely been a, a strange trip that we've had over the last uh, few months. Uh, one of the biggest hurdles our children are facing right now is equity in education. And, and let's be clear, it's only been heightened because of this. Um, but can you talk a little bit about your feelings on this topic before the pandemic and then how your thoughts have uh, moved, changed uh, at all since? Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point that the pandemic is showing um, the glaring holes and gaps that we have in inequities within our schools. So we talk about, you know, pedagogy, we talk about de delivering curriculum, resources, all those things now exacerbated because of the pandemic. But we got to be very clear that those things were there and they were glaring before the pandemic. And yes. I think we have to back up and not just, oh my God, this is happening. What are we going to do with these kids? What we what we need to do now is what we should have been doing 20 years ago. So Absolutely. the pandemic has just given us, it's just put the conversation in the forefront because we understand what's going to happen to kids who were behind. But we also have to understand that those kids were behind uh, six months ago as well. And why were they behind? When I think about what's going on and what we need to do as we move forward for next year, I think there's a lot of great ideas that are laying around. And we this is a time that we have to pick those great ideas up that we should have picked up 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Number one, you know, we should put a moratorium on testing, uh, not just for the next school year, but forever. Go. You're, let's, you're let's go. Sorry, I, I, we have to interrupt on that because we just have to celebrate that. You know, I wrote a piece for Ed Week just talking about what how fascinated I am of what is being done and what's being said in this time of crisis. And the, a lot of things that are being done and said now are what we needed 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, before No Child Left Behind even became something. So, for instance, the state superintendent of schools for Georgia, where I live, um, he came out maybe sometime mid-March and said, we need compassion over compliance. We need teachers not to be rigid. We need them to be more flexible. He's right. We need that right now. But we also needed that six months ago, two years ago. And we're also going to need it even more when our kids return to schools. We need to make sure that we are not trying to figure out how far behind they are and not trying to include any humanity within school. We're not going to bring them back to test them, to test them, to test them. We also need to think really Closely, not just about smaller classrooms because of the corona and the distance they need to be seating, but we need to think about smaller classrooms because we need students are going to need a lot of one on one help. Yes. We also need to think about our best and brightest teachers. Where are they going to be next year? So you are an AP teacher or you've taught honors or you teach gifted. That is great. But next year you're not teaching those. I think I worry, I, I honestly worry about, obviously this opportunity has given us the chance to really reflect on, you know, what inequities there were. And we've done a really good job in, in our institutions about teaching compassion and making sure that, that teachers have some flexibility even in my environment where job expectations are this. So in my classroom, my expectations are this. And now they're having to adjust those expectations. I worry what happens next year as we reintroduce back into the classroom. I'm a little nervous about some of those teachers that have lived those expectations for 10, 15, 20 years, and they're back into the classroom. And then there is this skills gap or this engagement gap or achievement gap. You know, do they just go back into their entrenched ways or 
do we continue that message of compassion? So do you kind of feel the same way? Are you are you anticipating a wave or shift one way or the other as you as you look at things from that, you know, equity standpoint? Well, you know, I think when we talk about equity, the biggest thing we have to remember is that equity doesn't mean that everybody gets the same thing. Equity means that those folks who have been marginalized for so long are now going to be put at the center of our work. And so if we're really going to talk about equity, then we must say that the kids that we knew that were behind before the pandemic and now have fallen behind um, because of the pandemic, they're going to be our first priority. And that's really hard concept for people to understand because we live in this world where they think everything should be fair. So (laughs) we have to really get into this idea that this is a glaring The pandemic has set off a glaring hole and people are using the word, oh, it's showing the inequities. Right. But if you want to correct those inequities, then you have to do things that are equitable. Right. Which means that the kids who were behind, the kids who had the least, you know, Okay, I'll give you an example. I was born and raised in upstate New York. I'm from Rochester, New York. And one of the worst, one of the most struggling school districts in the country. Um, I read a report just last week that 13 percent. 13% of elementary age students are on grade level in Rochester, New York. 13%. Wow. So you tell me, what do you think is happening right now in this pandemic? Also, upstate New York, Rochester, New York. Uh, Only 34% of Rochesterians own their home. Uh, The school district is 86% black and Latino, 90% free reduced lunch. Now, I grew up there when the statistics were different because we had Kodak, Xerox, Bosch Alam, all those major corporations. And so when you talk about how are we going to fix these things, you have to be talking about how are we going to shoot money and resources into schools. And so when you your first question, the question that you asked me about, you know, these teachers who don't want to change or are hard to change. We knew them before the pandemic. Right. Every every you any teacher who is a teacher and knows what he or she is doing, can walk through that class, walk through that school and and drop their heads at that classroom that you know nothing is happening in. So principals also know this. So that person next year does not need the kids who you know is behind. (laughs) Right. They need to go somewhere else. Maybe they can do small pullouts. Maybe, but as far as teaching a class and moving that class and getting that class where it needs to be, you know, you know, like the rest of teachers in that school know, they don't need to have those kids. And so we need some type of leadership that is going to be courageous and not just do what we know is comfortable and do things outside of the box that are really going to help these kids and do things that are equitable, not fair. That's so powerful to me. Um, And you're absolutely right when you say courageous, uh, because that would not be an easy decision for most, uh, I think, for most leaders to really, truly uh, enact. It, It would be an easy thing to say, you know, um, but to execute that and to, as you said, uh, suggested, you know, find the, the strongest teachers in your building and then have them focusing in on the those that have uh, the, the most need the most in this case is such a huge shift. Um, and I, I I'd love it. I, I would love to see that happen. Um because you, you framed it in a way that I think most people don't think about in terms of feeding more to those neglected populations, those that are struggling um, uh, all the uh, before, of course, and again, have been been highlighted here because of this. Um, I, I, I like that it you're saying put more rather than just sort of go with the status quo that, oh, we've really just, we got to, everything's got to be nice and, and fair. Uh, I, I love that it's not, oh, we're not going to be fair anymore. We're going to focus. Um, also think people need to understand that the reason why some people have more is not because some people have not tried hard. Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of, you know, and a lot of, you know, so I've been talking with, I have two I was telling you, I have two kids, they're twins. And, you know, they have been amazed by the word billionaire. 
And so they're like, oh, who's a billionaire? Oh, Jeff Bezos is a billionaire. Oh, you know, these, so they keep hearing like all these people are now billionaires. And I'm like, yes, they're billionaires, but understand they're billionaires because they're underpaying people. Yeah, that's right. how you get to be a billionaire. You get to be a billionaire because you underpay people. Yeah. And so we have to understand how education works. Yes, people are getting more resources because the system is jacked up. It's not because this is how these children or these schools or these communities want to be. Yes, you have school districts in the same district getting inadequate funding. Why is that? You have New York City schools, New York City schools. And they've now done, I don't know if you all saw the uproar that they had uh, just this last school year, not this one, but the one before with their New York City selective schools, what they call, you know, like magnet schools. 50, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, that, that was almost 55% black and brown. Now it's 9%. How is that happening? And so we have to understand that many of the inequalities are because of structural racism, because of capitalism. Nobody wants to be poor. Nobody wakes up and says, oh, I cannot wait to be poor. This is structural. (laughs) And so we have to have structural conversations to get at these things and not blame everyday people. The structure, that's that's huge. I think that um, and I have a little bit of experience. I taught in Indianapolis for a year uh, and it was in uh, a district, the district I grew up in. Um, and I, I mean, I'll, full disclosure, uh, you know, my first teaching job was in a predominantly white rural area. Um, and then when I took this job, certainly my classroom looked different. Um, and it frankly, my classroom looked what looked like what I grew up in. And that felt more comfortable to me. Uh, But that was the first time that I experienced and learned a a real a a real hard lesson, uh, which was I really felt like the distinguishing factor became became clear that the distinguishing factor between uh, all students was money. And, and, and I felt like, you know, again, in, in this school that I that I worked in, the middle school, the, the stats were similar uh, to what you're describing in terms of, you know, free and reduced lunch and things like that. And um, that really shook me um, as a young teacher uh, because I, I was lucky enough to I didn't grow up. Uh, in, in poverty, I, I, my parents were were comfortable enough, um, so, but to see it and see that like what was really deciding things in our building was uh, the the struggle, the financial struggle that our our kids were living within, that our parents were struggling through, and it just that was the real it, shock to me. It shook me as a kid. I, I remember, you know, we lived, my parent, my dad was in the air, air force. So we, we moved around a lot, but I actually, most of my like impressionable years happened when, uh, we were in South Carolina during, you know, late elementary middle school years and going from on base elementary school to off base middle school in Sumter, South Carolina, where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the the demographics are certainly flipped on its head <laughs> going from the on base school to going to the off base school. And I was just I was always and I think that's you know, that that has really stuck with me as, a, as an educator is that like I saw the inequity very early on as a as a kid that was impressionable and seeing the gap of, well, they don't like why don't they have this at this school? They had it at the other school or why aren't they, why, why aren't things being taught the same or why? And it was very early on and I'm lucky to, I, I grew up in a, you know, in a family that taught me that's not right, right? That, that it can be better and that we can continue to, to fight the good fight. And I'm glad that there are so many great things that you're doing. Um, one of the, one of the biggest things that jumped out to Marcus and I was uh, your research in um, this get free multimedia hip hop civics curriculum, which we definitely want to touch upon. First of all, we want to know more about it because, you know, the internet can only tell us so much, but uh, what out there is, as people are looking and leaders are looking for uh, specific things that kind of introduce them to this topic, um, you know, as far as uh, as young community leaders, artists, activists that are advocating for kind of that social change and that inclusion. Um, tell us about your your get free multimedia hip hop civics curriculum specifically and how teachers can use it in their classrooms. Yeah. So, you know, I 
was going around the country doing talks on hip hop and helping teachers think about putting hip hop into the classroom. And the first thing I tell folks before they want to engage in hip hop in the classroom is, do you know the culture? Because, you know, you can have kids rapping and that's really cool. I'm not against that. But do you know the culture? And what I what I learned was that many teachers wanted to engage students in hip hop, saw it as something that was valuable, but they were too afraid because they did not know anything about hip hop. And what they right. what they knew was based on stereotypes, myths, and what you hear on the radio. That's any anybody that's a hip hop head will tell you that ain't hip hop. And so what <laughs> I wanted to do was create a site. Um, that link this idea of hip hop to civics. And so I think oftentimes we talk about civics as um, voting, volunteering, um, very, you know, reading the newspaper, like very Eurocentric, low hanging fruit type of civics. And what I wanted to say was that hip hop is civics. You talking about your community, putting issues on the table in, about your community, um, you having conversations about your community, that's actually a civic project. And then I wanted to make the connection that black folks, we do civics, particularly because we have protests, we have fought, we have demanded, we have um, sued, we have legislated. I mean, this how can you say that black people are not civically engaged? Um, schools would not be integrated if black people were not civically engaged. Um, so to be black in this country is a civic project. And so I wanted to try to link the idea of hip hop and hip hop is hyper local. So what's happening or what's popping in Atlanta might not be popping in New York, but it's all under the umbrella of civics. I mean, under the umbrella of hip hop. So what I, what I did is I went around the country interviewing young, imaginative, creative activists. And many of them using hip hop, many of them a part of hip hop culture. And I got their stories on tape. Why did you get involved? What does it mean to be an activist? And then what I love about activists, if you ask them like, what's going on today? An activist will tell you what happened 30 years ago to tell you what's going on today. They're not just gonna tell you about today. And that's what we need young kids to understand, particularly in in the arena of Black Lives Matter. So you you're, you're hearing right now. I mean, I live in Georgia. What everybody here is talking about, particularly black folks are talking about is Ahmaud Aubrey. And so yeah. we want to have these conversations and hip hop has these conversations all the time. So how do you say we're not civically engaged? And so what the what the website does is it, we interview activists, we talk to them, we get their stories, we cut it down from a 45 minute video to a five minute video, and then we build curriculum around whatever they told us. So, you know, I, I um, interviewed Philip Agnew, the former executive director of Dream Defenders. He's talking about what it, what it means to do activist groundwork in Miami and in Florida, and he's naming these cases, or he's talking about these riots, the McDuffie riots. Okay, so as you listen, there's a link that says, here's the McDuffie riots. There's another activist that talks about, oh, this is political, I mean, this is politics or respectability. Oh, there's a link to politics respectability. So we have curriculum and questions built in so students can follow along these activists and understand what they're talking about. Um, it's all set to music. It's all have videos. Then we have a section where there's just great music. Teachers say, well, Dr. Love, I don't know what to play in the classroom. I don't know. Well, here's a section full of good music from Lauryn Hill to Jay-Z to Kendrick Nicole to Kendrick Kendrick Lacole, I'll put them together. Kendrick Lamar to J. Cole, because I'm waiting on that album. Um, <laughs> To Nina Simone, right? So it's just all of that really good stuff. There's a section um, that's PDFs of books, PDFs of articles to read. There's also a section that says, you know, like social justice and feminism. What is that? Here's a book list from on grade level. Uh, there's also TED Talks and videos that we're suggesting. So it's just a place for student, I mean, for teachers and I think parents and I want community folk to really see it as a hub of wherever you are in this idea of journey of hip hop education. So if you just yeah. want to say, hey, I just want to figure this out and listen to some music and see if that works. Oh, I want to get fully engaged in this idea of activism. Oh, I want to look at poetry and self-care. You know, it's a website that tries to do to meet people where they are and give them tools depending on their level of comfortability with including hip hop and civics in the classroom. I'm excited. <laughs> uh, I honestly I, and I, I, I did a little bit of research and I, I read up a bit. And I mean, 
all of it, but I, I love the the element that you, you stated about, you know, an activist is going to tell you about 30 years ago to tell you about today. And that is so, so strong. Um, because what that what that says is there this didn't think what whatever's happening right now didn't just up and happen you know uh it it didn't just pop out of uh thin air uh and, and that is so so true and, and i and i love that and i also love what you said about you know the how you know yes hip hop the the music obviously is is popular but it is civics because, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's civics because those artists are speaking about the truth and the current uh, in their music. And so it may happen to just look a little bit different than sort of the conventional mainstream culture. It's, it's, it's people's everyday reality. And, I, you know, I tell folks, listen. I know that some things you may hear on the radio or what you've heard about hip hop is is vile or is sexist or is patriarchal or is capitalistic. I, I get it. Um, but that's America. Right. Why wouldn't yep. it, why wouldn't it have that? How much money do how much money does corporate America spend every year on sexual harassment? It's not going to be in hip hop. <laughs> I mean, why, why do you think at some point these things are not going to get into culture? I mean, hip hop is um, part of African American culture. It's American. Yeah, it's that it's that brutal, uh, brutal truth that I that I think is probably what is misunderstood. It, you know, it's just how how this idea is expressed may not be the way that some folks in the world want to hear it. But guess what? If it's if it's the truth, you, you ought to listen. When I was, uh, you know, watching some of your your videos and uh, reading up uh, on on all of the great work that you've done, uh, I was taking notes, if I'm being completely honest with you. Um and uh, while I was watching a couple of interviews that you've done and the the curriculum, you know, I think on the surface for me, I, this is what I wrote down. OK, so I wrote down on the on the get free curriculum, creativity, improv, performance, music, technology and student engagement. These were the things that sort of popped into my head. And then now talking to you now, I almost I. I was I wasn't even seeing anywhere near as much as I should have been seeing. Um, but, you know, as an educator for 20 years, those things that I wrote down to me are the essential ingredients of a of an amazing learning environment uh, of what I envision, what learning should include. It should include creativity and improv and all those things. Um, but the perspective that you gave us here it, it just is even more accentuated those things. I just, I'm really, really amazing stuff because I think it would be easy for a lot of folks listening to, you know, maybe hear about Get Free or hear about some of the topics we're, we're discussing and say, well, you know, that's, that's not my, my, that's not my kids. That's not my classroom. And I think that, that would be, you know, dismissing without really uh, giving, uh, credence, um, proper credence. And I think that there's, there's definitely more, uh, that, that I think a lot of teachers could, could use that curriculum for and, and really sort of open their minds to, uh, a lot of different potential for their kids. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, that's the biggest thing, you know, I try to get people to understand is that social justice education is not just for people of color. Social justice right. education is for everybody. You know, because racism and inequalities and all these isms, they've done a number on all of us. Mm -hmm. Right. If if we if we can admit that we live in a racist country, that means somebody is racist. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. And Somebody's so, got to be right. Somebody, yeah. if, if, if you're going to say, you know, and people, this is where the conversation, you know, always stops with some folks. Well, I, they'll concede that, yeah, racism exists. Okay, well, racism is about power. So that means if you can see that racism exists, that means it, it affects both of us because some people are living with the power and some people are not. 
So that means it is impacting all of us. It is impacting the way you see the world. It's impacting the way you understand the world. It's impacting your humanity as well. So it impacts all of us. And so if we're all going to try and be better people for humanity, then social justice is for all of us. It's not just a black or white issue because I'm the black person being marginalized and I need the people who are marginalizing me to stop. (laughs) Right, right. So this becomes an issue for everybody. I know that you've talked a lot about um, what you've described as the need for educators to have a double consciousness about education. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I I just briefly heard it, the term, and I was like, God, I love that term. And I I kind of got the basic concept, but I know a lot of our listeners may have not seen some of your of th- your, your videos and webinars. But um, can you elaborate on what you mean by a double consciousness about education and kind of the standards um, that educators need to, to think about and live by? So, no, thank you for that question, the idea of this double consciousness. When I, when I think about it, and I've spoken about it before, it's the idea that, you know, teachers, there are things in the classroom that you know you have to do. Um, I th- you know what? My wife said it best the other day. She said, there are things you need, there are things you need to know you need to do, and then there's things you know have to get done. And I think as a teacher, when I talk to first-year teachers particularly, I always tell them, you have to be able to read between the lines. The school is going to hit you with a million things that you need to do and only about 30% of those things you actually need to do. Now, can you figure out what those 30 are is very important because if not, you're going to be running around stressed out with it like a chicken with a head cut off and you really didn't have to do all of those things. And so the double consciousness really is trying to figure out what, what is my role and obligation to the school? And then what is my role and obligation to these babies that I have into the classroom? Right. And you got to be able to manage those worlds because the structure and the institution will tell you, you need to do all of these things that are not humanly possible in a day. And if you focus all on those, you're not going to actually get to actually what you really need. And that is teaching and believing and finding joy and critically engaging and pushing and challenging the students. So yes, I, I yes. try to get teachers to understand you have to have a few you have to have a few different consciousnesses, a few different faces in that building. And one yeah. of those like, yes, OK, thank you. I can get it done. I'll, yeah. And then you're like, you know, this, they're not even going to check it. Some things you hand in, they're not even checking for. Right. Yeah. So you have to be, make sure that you don't get bottled down with, uh, you know, all of these bureaucracies and procedures and not actually doing the teaching that needs to be done. And sadly, Sadly, that we have to have that type of conversation. Sadly, yeah. people can, cannot just look and say, all of these forms and all these documents, this is dumb. Nobody, you know, one thing about bureaucracy is they don't want to streamline. <laughs> so, you know, I really try to get teachers to understand the struggle of what it means to be an educator, the, the multiple duties, the multiple hats. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you have to decide who you're really there for. I put a, I just do a little newsletter with my teachers and, uh, and, you know, share out, you know, resources and things like that. And, uh, one of the things that I put, uh, in there a few weeks ago was compassion over content. And when this whole, whole thing began, one of the very first, uh, realizations that I think a lot of educators had was this immediate fear that they were not going to be able to cover the standards or the content because we weren't going to be in the brick and mortar classrooms. And it was it sad. <laughs> it was sad that the gut, the, the gut instinct of so many educators was, but how are we going to cover the stuff? And, and luckily I'm, you know, I'm not taking any credit for that thinking at all. Uh, luckily so many of us out there were thinking, similarly in the other direction like let's let's look at what we've got and let's worry about what's like you like you're suggesting what's most important and let's you know filter through and let's make the best of it but um it, it, that to me spoke to uh, again a point that you've made uh, beautifully which is you know the structure the system itself you know we've we've trained a lot of teachers to be way too concerned about 
doing the things rather than the the compassion aspect. Yeah. You know, I, what I do in my class now, I teach the first class that students take when they enter the program at the University of Georgia to be a teacher. And, you know, you just, you start to get old. And so I ask my students every year, you know, how old were you all when 9-11 happened? And I've gotten to the point now where students are saying, I wasn't alive. Yeah, right. And that for me is a really framing because that we now that lets me know that we have teachers who are becoming we have students who are becoming teachers and all they know is no child left behind. Right, right. All they know is testing and they're good at it. That's how they got here. Yep. And now I'm trying to tell you you know what? The schooling you had for the last 12 years was really trash. There's a lot of great things that you learn, but what you learned more than anything was compliance and conformity. Yeah. And I'm asking you now to drop all of that. And they're looking at me. No, this is what's gotten me here. Right. And they've, they've, gr- they've grown up in that environment. It's hard. I think it's so hard to have that conversation. And I, I'm really interested in, you know, what your message is beyond that, because I really loved, we, I watched your Ted talk on grit, loved it. Um, your, your more recent conversation about spirit murdering, you know, really specifically with diverse communities, it, it is something we've tried to spend time and effort on. I know with our district leadership and uh, developing strategies for our teachers, but where do you suggest that they start? Because they have grown up in an environment where they've been drilled with testing and they don't understand anything other than no child left behind. And they may like their backgrounds are so, you know, different. You might have some that say, well, that doesn't affect me or I'm not affected by that at all. So what strategies do you really suggest districts and and leaders start with to recognize those situations and like ways that leadership or even teachers can begin kind of turning that page to a more positive direction? That's the money question right there, because that's that's the work. That's the real work of trying to make educational justice and educational change is trying to get educators to have the understanding of who they're going in the classroom to teach. And so what we need school district to do is to have the fortitude and the courage. And we need corporate America. We need philanthropists to really say, hey, what would it mean for teachers to live in the school district? What would it mean for teachers to create curriculum, actual curriculum with community leaders and uh, grandmas in the community? What would it mean for teachers to really understand um, how the prison industrial complex works? That to understand that you are a part of that. What would it mean for us to decriminalize schools and put therapists and counselors in our schools and not police officers and dogs, right? We, we, we really have to think if we want to see something different, then we have to do something different. Right. And we have to make school a more humanizing, beautiful, loving place. And that's going to take some investment. That's going to take some will. It's going to take some courage. But it's also going to take doing what we know needs to be done. There's one marker of education. There's just there's really one marker that any school district can use. And it's, will your teachers send their children to the school that you teach in? And that's it. And if the teachers won't send their own kids there, you already know what it is. Yeah. And that that's happens too point. often, right? Teachers are flying out of that building at 3.30 because they got to get their kids. They got to go to their kids' football game. They got to go to their kids' basketball game and cheerleading. They got to go to their kids' activities because they won't send their kids to the school that they teach in. But they, I, I bet they'll use that money that you right. get from that school every two weeks. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have to be honest about, you know, why wouldn't you send your kid to this school and that you teach at? Why is this? Why is this school not good enough for your children? And then take action to make it. So let's say you know let's let's do a a, a hypothetical here. Um, uh, unfortunately, you know we're in it. We're in a place now where we're struggling in education to get new young teachers uh, into our buildings. Uh, I'm I, that's a. Uh, nationwide, if not worldwide, challenge. I know we see it uh, on a regular basis. Um, 
you know, if you and you do this, so I want to hear hear what you would say. But um, when you're speaking to, you know, prospective future educators um, that are going to graduate from university and move on into into education, what you know, what what are your pieces of advice in terms of of what they how they should approach this work? Um, you know, I really give them one big piece of advice, and that is you can't just be a teacher. You actually have to be an activist. You got you to gotta understand that the things that you know is right, you're going to have to fight for. For instance, I'll give you an example. You know, we are under the impression that to be an educator means you're never going to get paid. That's not true. That's just something we learned to become the norm. We can actually fight. If nothing, if the pandemic has taught us nothing, it has taught us that money seems to come when it wants to come. <laughs> Absolutely. Where did where did they pull trillions of dollars from? I'm wondering that too. Is I because I don't know about economics. Me. I I only understand what I remember from senior government and econ in high school, and I remember that they said that you couldn't just print money. And send it out to people. And I was there was there's I understand supply and demand and I understand that you can't just print money and everybody gets rich. But the problem is that they're going to print money and then in three months they're going to say school budgets are are tanked. So we're going to have to find a way to cut teachers. That's already happening. You, uh, Atlanta saying they're fifty two million dollars in the hole. There's some school districts in Detroit, Michigan are saying that they're so in the hole they might do online learning even if we can go back. So see, this is so. What I'm saying is that we have we have to have teachers to say I have a voice. I'm not just going to get up in this classroom and teach these kids. I'm going to get up in this classroom and teach these kids, and I'm gonna get out in these streets and I'm gonna protest for what's right. You know, I've said for for years that teachers have to stop being martyrs. You know, um, and have to start you, you, being, you know, stop saying, well, we're just teachers and we'll just do whatever, you know. And, and yes, it's a it's a thankless job. And yes, all of those things may have been true. But I love what you're saying in terms of, you know, there is a time uh, to to and probably it's long should have been long before this. But I love what you're saying about new educators and even current educators and even veteran educators stop being, you know, that passive uh, person and start being, uh, you know, at some level an activist because, you know, who's going to fight for us but us? Yes. And, and, and I'm not saying that we, you know, to be an educator is to just this endless fight. But what I'm trying to get you to know is that there's not there. I can't prepare you for everything you're going to see in the classroom. Yeah. I, there's no way I can do that. What I can tell you and what I can try to prepare you is to stand up for your damn self. It's to stand up for your kids. It's to use your voice. And you're at a college classroom right now. You're protected. There's nothing that can happen to you. I need you to learn how to use your voice, because if you don't learn it now, you're not going to learn it. And what I, what I jokingly tell my students that because I teach at the University of Georgia, which was just, you know, overwhelmingly predominantly white. And I say, hey, listen, I'm the black principal. Look around. This is this is pretty much how it's going to look. What are you going to do? Right. Are you are you really going to sit there and know that these things are wrong and know that these things are happening and do nothing about it? So only way I can if you're already thinking about being a teacher, then you 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 know all these things. If you're actually coming to the classroom or you're coming to the teacher training or you're coming to the recruitment fair, you already know. Right. So all I can do is try to say, what are you going to do about it? There's no profession like this. There's no profession where you can't go to the bathroom when you want to go to the bathroom. (laughs) But there's no profession as beautiful to say you got 25 kids that are staring up at you and you have the ability to change their actual trajectory in life. But it's only one side if you see your only work in the classroom. And we see, I think, the power of student voice is so strong um, with some of the tools that we get access to. I know Marcus and I have, have talked a lot about that, and we're really big believers in in student voice and their ability to to choose and and have some say in in their educational process, which is great. But what are some positives and and some negatives that you're seeing in education today that either amplify that or or shut out the voices of our students on the other side? Well, you know, it's it's funny because I, I do a lot of work with school 
schools who want to put hip hop in the classroom, schools who want to have student voice. Um, and they say all the things that you're saying. We want to have student voice. We want to have student input. But when students actually voice their concerns, well, <laughs> you didn't really want student input. Right. Or, when st- well, you know, I, ha- I went to one place and they had an amazing studio. Oh, my. It was amazing. But you couldn't curse. I said, well, why can't the kids curse? I'm not I'm not saying they can't. I'm not, I don't want them to curse at somebody. Like, I don't want you to call right. somebody a name. But if they're like, this is effed up, why can't they say that? Yeah. Right? And so you want student voice, but you only want it a particular type of way. Right. You don't actually want authentic student voice. You actually don't want pushback. Or I was, um, you know, I was doing a lot of work with schools during, you know, when we ha- when we had schools and students were protesting and walking out over multiple issues. And I had, you know, school districts say to me, well, the students want to walk out, let's say Monday at 12. I said, okay, they want to walk out Monday at 12. What's the problem? Oh, we want to, we support, we support. Okay, what's the problem? Well, they're going to miss tests. So we're going to move the test. I said, no, let these kids understand that to protest means to miss something but you've given up something because you believe it's a greater cause if you yeah. if the kids want to have a protest and you just structure the day so they don't miss anything well that's pretty much free time <laughs> it's not a protest they're just in the they're just in the parking lot so we we have to as adults when we say we want voice when we want authentic voice when we want we want youth to say what they got to say then we as adults have to let them do that in authentic ways. I always joke with my friends, you know, I think as soon as you become 30, you're just done. You're just, you're just done. You're just done. You know, everything is, you just become approved somehow. Like, oh my God, what are they doing? The same thing you did. Yeah. yeah. They, they're, doing the same, they're doing the same thing you did. Um, it may look a little different. It may sound a little different. But at the end of the day, we all, we were all kids and we all wanted to have a voice. We all wanted to be heard. And, um, I think schools are a great place for that, but but let it be authentic and let it be something that leads to positivity. And you may have to go through some darkness to get to that positivity. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing that's scary for a lot of folks is allowing that freedom and allowing students to, uh, you know, give them give them a little bit of wiggle room, if you will, in hopes that there's a, a positive that comes from it, even if in the it's that uncomfortable moment, you know, I think Eddie, Eddie and I, we, we would keep you on this podcast for hours. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we wanted to kind of wrap some things up. We, I've been just absolutely uh, honored to, to talk with you today. Um, but before we let you go, we want to let some people in on some of the great things that you're doing around education. Uh, so where can people find your books connect with you on social media, just plug all the things. Yeah, so my latest book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, Out on Beacon Press. You can get it at any place you buy books. Um, you can find me at patinalove.com and on Twitter and Instagram, I am Love Soul Power. We have linked everything in our show notes for this episode. And guys, if if this, you know, 45 minutes hasn't said anything about the need for you to to jump on the Dr. Patina Love bandwagon, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what I don't know what else we can do because yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, we had 45 minutes and this uh, I Marcus, I have like four pages of notes again. Like, <laughs> like always you'd, we're just so grateful for the work that you're doing and and the and the and the fight that you're putting up for educators and students and and just trying to make our uh, industry that much better. So Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thank you all for having me. Thank you for giving me a platform to keep my ideas going and and share. So thank you. (laughs) 